Well, as we look to the Word of God this morning, we're going to come to a text where really the, almost in a sense the throne room of God comes down to earth. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 uh, through 22. Just a really short passage today, uh, a passage that, uh, that describes for us the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. So I just got... Uh, I want to take some time to unpack this, 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 uh, this little short passage, but a, a rich passage nevertheless. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. I'll read the text for us. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that we've just sung. How holy, holy, holy thou art. Thank you, God, for revealing to us yourself revealing to us the glories of your holiness and and your majesty in your throne room. Father, as we look to your word now, we thank you that your glory is made known to us in your word. Thank you, Father, for showing us who you are, who your son is through your word today. We ask that your spirit would fill us, that your spirit would guide and lead our time, teach us what we need to know that we might learn more about Jesus so that we might bring you more glory in in his name. Father, we pray that you would uh, cause us to understand uh, who Jesus is, that we would grow in love for him, a love for you, and also consequently, Lord, that you would cause us to go forth into our world with a love for our neighbors, love for the world, that would bring the message of who Jesus is and what he's done to wherever you lead us. God, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Today is a study of the baptism of Jesus. And if you uh, have ever done a study of the Gospels, you know that there's a way to study the Gospel called the harmony of the Gospels. And uh, harmony of the Gospels is kind of a fun way to study the Gospel because usually when we go through a text, we kind of just focus on the text that's before us. We will focus on maybe, for instance, the, these two verses today. But in a harmony, you'll, you'll take time to, because it's, there are four Gospels, we'll, we'll look to the other Gospels for what they might add to the text. And we'll, we'll actually do a more of a comparison and contrast of all the relevant passages. And this, verse is, or this event is significant because it's one of the first events in all of Jesus' life and ministry where all four of the gospel writers actually records this event. And so you know it's significant, at least to the gospel authors, that this event is significant. It stands out. There's some events that's just one, one of the gospel writers include, like John, for instance, write about it. Or sometimes Matthew and Mark write about it. Or maybe Mark and Luke will write about it. But there's very few, besides well, they, well, besides the, basically the last week of Jesus, which all four gospel authors will write about because that's his death, and, uh, his death and resurrection eventually. But uh, the rest of the gospel, the rest of Jesus' life, it's kind of unique when we find something like the passage today. Uh, what's fun about it, of course, is if you, have you, can I just say, Ray, anybody kind of go through a study of a harmony of the gospel before? 
All right, feel you. Okay, feel you. Oh, well, this book's written on that, and I just encourage you, Bible church people, go buy yourself a harmony of the Gospels and, and study it someday, because it's pretty neat. Because when you compare and contrast, and you, you probably come across it because you're just reading your Bible, and you kind of go, like, hold on a second. As I just read this passage, I remember it being said somewhere, taught somewhere else, but there's a little difference. And you'll notice the differences, right? You, you kind of notice, oh, there, here this said there's one angel that was. And here's another one that said there was two angels there at the tomb. How do you, you know, figure that out? Sometimes, of course, you, you can study all the different uh, accounts and you find out that they share a common theme or they'll all say, emphasize one thing. And you can kind of get a sense that because they all emphasize that one thing, that somehow that's an important thing, right? Uh, of course, uh, it is really challenging when there are like, uh, you come across a, uh, a, a kind of a... Uh, a distinction between the pastor where they're almost saying two opposite things, okay? And, and that's where you kind of scratch your head and you start looking at commentaries and kind of like, well, how do I figure that one out? But it's pretty fun. And today I want to do that with us because this today's only writ is only uh, two verses long. And you kind of scratch your head when we think about it because remember why Luke wrote this gospel? Luke wanted to write the gospel so that his, his recipient, Theophilus, would know the exact truth about what the things that took place, the things that were fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, and so he said that he made sure to do a, a thorough researching of all the facts. And yet, after having done a thorough research of all the facts, Luke just writes down two verses. Two verses. Come on, Luke. Didn't you find out anything else? Was, did you have some shoddy research? Absolutely not, because we've already seen Luke mention some specific details that we go, whoa, that's, that's more detail than I need, Luke. But... Luke just brings this down. He boils it down to two verses. And the fact that he boils it down to two verses actually means that it's, there's something in these two verses that he wants us to know. He doesn't want to tell us about the extra stuff that the other gospel authors are telling us. He just wants us to know what's in this text. There's something about it. And so I hope to do that today uh, as we go through this text. Uh, hopefully it's, I, I hope it's fun for you, honestly, because it's fun for me when I study the Bible this way. Uh, and, you know, not just, you know, Bob said the Bible is not to be boring, you know, right? It's supposed to be fun. It's like, oh, this is intriguing. This is exciting. Uh, man, I want to learn more about the Gospels. Anyways, so in the brevity of Luke's uh, account, we really see what he wants to emphasize. And when we study the Luke's record, Luke's record of the baptism of Jesus, we discover that it reveals, really, Jesus' qualifications to be the Messiah. Jesus' qualification to be the Messiah. Now, you remember, just for, as far as our kind of general outline of where we're at right now, in chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 13, this is that section of the gospel where we see the preparation for the ministry of Jesus. He's preparing for his public ministry. It'll especially begin in chapter 4, verse 14. But in chapter 3 to chapter 4, 13, we see this preparation. In all four segments, whether it's the forerunner of Jesus, which we looked at last time, uh, John the Baptist, or it's the baptisms of Jesus today, or the genealogy of Jesus, stay tuned next week because that's going to be exciting, right? And then uh, the two weeks from now, the temptation of Jesus, and well, that's pretty interesting as well. We're going to see in these four passages that they all will emphasize, they'll all show us how Jesus is the one who is uniquely qualified to be the representative of all humanity, as well as all Israel, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world. So that's what we're going to see uh, in all four of these texts, and we'll see it today as well in the baptism of Jesus. Now, uh, one more thing to add. What's kind of really neat about this text is just as we read it, uh, did you notice anything that's kind of neat or stands out or like, oh, 
that is cool. Theology-wise, yeah, I know. You were thinking the Trinity, right? Yeah, exactly. The Trinity. Now, this is like, oh, man, it's one of those, oh, mind-blown theology because that's stuff we hear about. That's that word that's not in the Bible, but it's taught everywhere else in the Bible. That's that word, Trinity, the triune God. That God is three persons in one essence, one being. That's the doctor of the Trinity. And here, and there's a bunch of verses in the Bible where we actually find all three members of the Trinity present, right? You'll say, uh, Jesus says, baptize, go therefore make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you see these various passages where all three members of the Trinity are mentioned. But this verse, as far as I know, is the only verse in the Bible where explicitly all three members of the Trinity are actually present. They manifest in this one verse. Now, obviously, you know your Bible. You know that creation, all three members of the Trinity were there. And wherever God is, all three members, in a sense, are there. You know that by, you know, just by generally what the Scripture teaches. But here's where it explicitly teaches that. Explicitly statement in these two verses. So it's really cool. We see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit mentioned. And that's, and that's a, a very good apologetics for those of you that ever uh, come across someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity of God. Anyways, are we mo- moving on. So the fact here that the triune Godhead is active here tells us <coughs> in the baptism of Jesus, tells us that this event is significant. And that's why all four gospel writers will put it, put it down for us. And their presence basically validates Jesus' ministry. It, it validates his ministry that he is the Messiah. And as for an outline today, we're going to look at uh, the involvement then of the, these three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll go in the order of the text. Uh, but the three, the three persons of the Trinity and how their involvement reveals Jesus' qualification to be the Messiah. So that's, that's hopefully we'll, we'll get that. And, and I know for the most of you, I'm just preaching the choir, right? You, you, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah, yeah amen. Okay, so you're like, I already, I already got the application right. I'm uh, Jesus the Messiah. So it's good. But you want to know why is Jesus the Messiah? Don't, not just because Pastor Henry says so, because the Bible says so. Or in this case, what's really cool is that everybody has been saying that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Angel Gabriel says so. Zachariah says so, Mary says so, Elizabeth says so, angels say so, shepherds say so, even Jesus says so. But now, like the trump card that is, boom, God the Father says so, right? That just to settle it. What does God the Father say about who Jesus is? You're my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Wow, it's real powerful. We're going to get there. Okay, excited. Um... Let's move on. So three points. Let's move on. Let's look at the text. So first person of the Trinity that we find in this text is Jesus, right? Jesus, and we look at Jesus' baptism, Jesus' involvement, his baptism. I'm going to read verse 21 with me, please. Let's look at this. We'll, we'll delve in, and we'll kind of get a little, uh, whoa, we're going, to get, we're going to kind of dig in a little deeper. And he began to say to them, whoa, wrong chapter. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, okay? And while he was praying, heaven was opened. Now, the occasion of Jesus' baptism, it tells us right here, takes place when all the people were baptized. Now, if you have the New American Standard Bible or the ESV translation, you have what I just read to you, 
Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And in the English, that seems to convey that somehow you can almost picture it. And there are sermons like this. There's actually commentaries like this um, where Jesus basically was just patiently waiting at the end of the line, you know. Everybody was kind of getting in line. There's a long line at Jordan River. Everybody's just kind of, Jesus is kind of waiting, you know, you know, just kind of going out, just taking his time. And then finally, when everyone, all of the people were baptized, then Jesus, because he's so patient, so gracious, so, you know, uh, you know, long-suffering, he gets baptized too. And then some application about how we should be long-suffering and patient. Well, that, that's a biblical principle. That's not what the point, that's not what this text is conveying, okay? That's not what's meant, uh, now, if you, any of you guys use the NIV translation, that actually, in this case, gives the best sense of the Greek. And the NIV says this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, okay? So it's almost, it's the picture of this. It's at, when everyone was getting baptized, at the height of John's ministry, when he was baptizing people, when everybody was going, Jesus came among the crowds, and he too was baptized. As the crowds repented of their sins, Jesus came to be baptized by Jesus, by John, sorry. Jesus came to be baptized by John. Get those names right, all those J's in the Bible. So now that immediately you think, well, okay, John was preaching on baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus came to be baptized. The question you're immediately asking already, right? You're asking it because I see your mind. You're like, you say, wait a moment. Why did Jesus need to get baptized, right? You're asking that, right? Good, because like, because... Because you know that Jesus is the sinless son of God, right? Like, that makes no sense. Why would Jesus, the sinless son of God, need to be baptized a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins when he doesn't have any sins? That really makes no sense. Unless you want to be like, a, you know, those liberals that just say, oh, you know, well, Jesus was just, that just shows that Jesus was a human being and he had a sinful nature like you and me. And that's why he was baptized because he needed to be forgiven of sins. Okay. All right. Don't listen to that. Anyways, there's an answer. There's an answer. You ask why. And by the way, I have to say that that's not Luke's, it's really not Luke's concern. It's not what he emphasized in the text. Of course, this is where when you do the harmony of the gospel, because the question that we're asking can be found in one of the other passages. And I want to take you to one of those passages. In Matthew chapter 3, and I'll put it up here for you. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, we find Matthew's account. And this is cool, because we read this. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So this is a statement where Jesus answers. And John recognizes, even though John doesn't, uh, later on we're going to find out, John doesn't even know that he's the Messiah yet. But he knows one thing about Jesus, because Jesus is relatives, is that Jesus is not a man of sin. He don't got no sin. And but Jesus says, permit it so we might fulfill all righteousness. See, in getting baptized, Jesus showed that he identified and believed in John's ministry and message. He believed in John's message. He believed that there, there's a necessity of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He believed that John was the forerunner of the Messiah and that John would come to call people to prepare and make the way. And so Jesus, by getting baptized, identified with John's ministry. He had not only identified with his ministry, but identified with his message. But what's more, Jesus' baptism identified with the people who were getting baptized. 
The people who were coming to John and, and recognizing that they were sinners, they needed forgiveness, and so they were repenting of their sins, and they were then, as a symbol of their repentance, getting baptized. Because why? Because they were getting ready for the Messiah who would come and the Messiah who would bring the salvation of God. And that's why they were getting baptized. And Jesus, by coming to get baptized, basically says, amen. That's true. He comes to simply identify himself with that whole ministry, to validate the ministry of John. He believes in the ministry of John. There's a, a great cross-reference there. Matthew 21, 32 is, a, is just a cross-reference, I think, will help you kind of, if you want to further research that. But that's not the main point of Luke, by the way, but I just add it because I think we're all wondering. You need to be asking that question. But let me move on. As we look at this text, and I've said not, that's not Luke's main emphasis. So really, what is Luke's main emphasis here? What is Luke's main emphasis here in Jesus' baptism? Well, first of all, let me add that the grammar here in the underlying Greek is, a, is kind of a, is a comp, bit unusual and complex. But when you look at the English, it seems really clear. When I look at the English, my translation is that when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And that's why, you know, I titled the sermon, Jesus was also baptized. Because it just seems like that's the main point. That the main point is Jesus too was baptized. And in fact, if I look at my heading in my Bible, I get that Jesus is baptized. So I must be on to the right track. However, in the Greek, that's really not Luke's emphasis. Luke's emphasis, in fact, the fact that Jesus is baptized here is really, at least uh, grammatically, is really just part of the, is part of the, the occasion in which the events that Luke wants to focus on are taking place. That is, in the, in the setting of when everyone was getting baptized, it was in the setting of when Jesus also was baptized, but it was particularly in the setting when he was praying after he was baptized. And this is kind of where Luke starts to differentiate himself from the other uh, gospel accounts, in that he alone mentions here, verse 21, that Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying. In fact, it was Jesus was praying after he was baptized. And a lot of times we read that, we just kind of gloss right over that. We just ignore it, pretty much. Because we just think, well, yeah, Jesus is always praying. But Luke includes it here when all the other gospel writers doesn't include it. They leave it out. Luke includes it because he wants us to know that there's something significant about Jesus praying after his baptism. And that leads us to what's important here. So what might Luke mean by emphasizing Jesus' prayer here, that he's praying after his baptism? Now, uh, we would then have to kind of study, do a quick study of how does Luke talk about Jesus and his prayer life? I think you're any average Christian, you know that Jesus prayed all the time. And you've probably heard many different passages. But let me just kind of quickly run off a list of Luke's records of Jesus' prayer. Okay, Luke, this is just all in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, and I, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to throw it up on a slide or something like that for you, but this, listen to this. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus prays as large crowds begin gathering to him in chapter 5, verse 15, 16. He prays before choosing the 12 apostles, chapter 6, verse 12 to 13. He prays before asking his disciples the important question of, of who do, do they say he is, chapter 9, verse 18. He prays before his transfiguration, 9, 28, 29. 
He prays before he taught his disciples how to pray in chapter 11, verse 1. Before raising Lazarus in chapter 11, verse 41 to 42. For Peter's faith not to fail uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Satan's testing of him that would come soon in 22, 31, 32. He prays before his betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, 41 and following. And then, of course, while on the cross in Luke 23, 34 and 46. Certainly, Jesus' prayer life was more than what was recorded by Luke. But when you look at the pattern of Luke, when he records about Jesus praying, he often emphasized that Jesus would pray before a significant event, a significant part of Jesus' life and ministry. Whenever something major is about to happen, you can find, you be certain that Luke is recording that Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying. And so it's no surprise then that here we find that as Jesus prepares to, to begin his ministry, he too, again, is praying to the Father. And he's praying. And he's preparing himself. He needs to think about what he is about to face. Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. Up to this point, 30 years. He's basically grown up in anonymity in a country town, Nazareth, in, in the country parts of, 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 uh, of Israel. No one would have known him. And he was a carpenter, so he wasn't even a priest or a religious leader. And now he's about to start preaching. Preaching a gospel that many people would not want to hear. A preaching that would cause people to oppose him, to hate him, to seek to kill him. He would begin to find that he would, his opposition would come from the upper echelons of Jewish society. These aren't just your neighbors, though the neighbors would also think, we need to get, his, actually his family says, we need to get this guy because he's, he's lost it. But it would be the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes. The, the, and these are people of power. He would face opposition, not only from the Jewish society, but he would eventually be betrayed by his own. He would be brought and tried for the political leaders all across the land. And then, of course, he would be physically beaten, tortured, crucified, to hang on a cross, to die for sins that he did not commit. And Jesus is human, 100% man, as he is 100% God. In preparation for his ministry, he does the thing that we all should be doing. Pray. Pray in preparation. That's what he does. And the answer comes quickly. His communion with God the Father is so close that he gets a quick answer. And the answer is powerfully vivid as well. And the answer comes, at least grammatically, it comes as a description of three quick successive events. If you look at the text, it's heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended and a voice came out of heaven. Three things are going to happen. Um, and uh, I'll, the latter two I'm going to bring out in our second and third point. But let me just bring out this, uh, flesh out this first, the first event that happens. And this is what Jesus, this is what Luke really emphasized in his text. That in Jesus, on the occasion of Jesus' baptism, it is validated and confirmed and affirmed of who he is because as he was praying, heaven was opened first. And then the Holy Spirit descended, and the Father spoke. What does it mean, then, that this idea that, that uh, heaven was opened? 
Well, heaven was opened, it could mean the sky was opened, or it could mean the heaven was opened. And since we don't get any further description of it, it is, uh, it is you know, you could take either view. But nevertheless, when we see this phrase, the heaven of, is opened, that it is a common theme, a common motif, a common a symbol in the scriptures. That whenever we see this phrase, the heaven is opened, God comes to act or to reveal of something. His, some revelations come. He's going to bring some truth or he's going to bring some action. You know, the first time that we actually see this phrase, the heavens are opened, is in actually Genesis chapter 7. You remember what happened there? The windows of heaven were opened and the rain came down, flood. But throughout the scriptures, we'll see this phrase, the heaven was opened, the heaven was opened. And a lot of times it would be associated with revelation. Some other passages that we associate with Revelation is Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Ezekiel, the heaven was open. He saw the vision of God. Acts chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, and the, the heavens were open, and we see the, the revelation to, to Peter. Uh, revelation nineteen eleven, where we see the, the heavens were open, and Jesus is coming back. Every time when the heavens are open, God is about to reveal himself to mankind. God is about to take action. And so... That's what we'll find in the next two events. We're going to see how God's going to, the heavens are open and God's going to act. And we'll see how he acts. But for now, just to conclude this, uh, this, this first point of Jesus' baptism, we can simply conclude that when Jesus was praying, God responds both visibly and audibly to equip the Son for the work that lies ahead of him. To equip him for the work that lies behind for him. Now, before we can look at these two events, I want to just draw two quick applications for us. You know, we're, we're, this, is, this, is really, this is a very Christological passage. It's a heavy on the understanding who Christ is. But I, I want to make sure just there's some encouragements from, as we understand Christ's character, there's some application for us. Now, number one is this, and I think this is very fitting. I love that. Thank you, Brother Stan, for just reading off the announcements because there's a baptism coming, okay? Now, think about this, brothers and sisters. If Jesus, the sinless Son of God, identifies with repentant sinners in baptism, that's what he does when he got baptized, then for those of us who are repentant sinners who have believed upon the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins, how can we not identify with him in baptism as well? Right? I know some of us here, know, we all clear that uh, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is not a requirement. But I would just encourage you. I just encourage you, those of you that here that believe in Jesus Christ, I know a lot of you here, I'm not questioning your salvation. Not at all. Because you're saved by faith and by faith alone in Christ alone. But when you think about Jesus' great commission, what he calls the church to do, he calls us to go make disciples. How do we identify disciples? Baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's an opportunity for you to identify with Jesus. And if something that can help you along the way, just remember Jesus identified with you when he came and got baptized. Now, in a, in a just easy application right now, you can just take your bulletin, especially if you have the electronic version, just click on that link right now. I'll give you permission to do that. Okay? You can just click on it, get the information, put your email, and sign up for the baptism. Easter Sunday. That's a great day to get baptized, by the way. If you haven't been baptized, um, for the forgive, not for the forgiveness, baptized because you've been forgiven of your sins in Jesus Christ. I invite you to do that. I think that'd be a great application. 
All right. Well, the second application, of course, is I mentioned earlier, Jesus prays in preparation for his ministry. Then how much more should you and me? Right? We all have ministry we do. What God's called us here. God's left us here. He saved us. He's brought us here in this world. So for what? To do the good works that he has created for us in us, for in, in Christ, us, for us in Christ Jesus. So we're going to do this work. Then, then, what should, then should we not also pray in preparation for the work and the ministry? Brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you someone who I know really well who can give you some great examples of basically when he doesn't pray before he does the work, his ministry is less effective because he's depending upon himself. But when the man is this brother I know really well, when he's praying in preparation for the work and the ministry that's before him, God takes that word and does a powerful work. And I know you guys understand that principle of work because you guys, a lot of you have been serving for a long time. Don't fall in the trap that I, this brother I know falls into sometimes. To get so busy in the ministry, so busy, so weighted down with the work that you're not praying to prepare for the work of that ministry. Because it is vain. It's vain work when we do it that way. I have some wisdom. Anyways, Scripture teaches us to pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. Let's be in prayer like Jesus. Okay, second event. Let's move on. Second event. So Jesus' baptism. We see Jesus, the, the, the Son of God, being involved in baptism. He's getting baptized. But now we also see in the, verse 22, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, become active in baptism as well. And that's the Holy Spirit's descent. I mentioned uh, three events that take place as soon as Jesus comes out of the water and he's praying. Well, the first is the heavens open, and you can expect this heaven's going to be open, something's going to come out, or something's going to show up. And when people are looking, the Holy Spirit descends, as we see. Verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, that is Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit now descends, and, and it's, it's interesting that all four gospel writers include this event. They don't not only say that the Holy Spirit descended, they don't just stop with, oh, Jesus got baptized and that was it. But they all say that Jesus got baptized, the Holy Spirit descended, and they furthermore, they add the phrase, in, in some way or form or shape, as a dove. Matthew writes, the Spirit of God descending as a dove. Mark writes, the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. John has the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. Now, Whereas the others allow the possibility of a dove being an apparition or vision. I believe that Luke, when he writes here, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. That Luke is saying that the Spirit is actually descending in some bodily form. Bodily form that is a shape of a dove. It's not, it's not a, a, like... And just a spirit being, or in essence, even though the Holy Spirit is a spirit, but it is a bodily form, some kind of visible bodily form like a dove. It said, like a dove. So it, you know, I, I think it probably was a dove. I mean, that's why they said scripting just like a dove. But it's, if you say it was a, something that looked like a dove, uh, that's fine too. But it's a bodily form, something physically, visibly present. But in John's gospel account, uh, we we kind of come to understand what is the significance, particularly, of the Spirit descending upon some. I'll get to the dove part a little bit later, by the way, but I want to 
emphasize what is the significance of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. Why does he need the Holy Spirit? Because we'll see from the parallel passage or the other account. John chapter 1, verse 32 and 34. This is John's account. And John, the Apostle John, is writing this, but he's writing it about John the Baptist. So verse 32 here is John the Baptist. John testifies saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, this is really cool because John basically is revealing that, uh, that he had received a vision or a revelation from God. And that revelation is very specific. Even though he didn't know who the Messiah would be, he did not know. It's kind of interesting considering, you know, how uh, their births were so kind of linked together even uh, in the earlier parts of Luke. But he did not know. He says, I did not recognize him. But he was revealed, it was revealed to him that God said that he would see someone in whom the Spirit would descend upon and remain, that is, abide on. And whoever that, wherever, whoever that person was where the Spirit would abide upon him, that was the one whom John was talking about, the one who's greater than him, the one who would come, who would baptize in the Spirit. That's the one who would be the Messiah. That's the one whom John says, this is the Son of God. And so the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus was at least, for John's case, a confirmation. It was a confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, but it's not just for John. When we look at the prophecies of Isaiah, for instance, we see that the Spirit descending upon Jesus is actually a confirmation for all to know that he is the Messiah. I want to share with you just two uh, references in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it's speaking of the, the, um, the Davidic branch of Jesse, the, the Messianic branch of Jesse. And here it says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Messianic branch of Jesse will have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. And that's unique because, remember in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord resting upon is an unusual thing. Remember when the Holy Spirit came in the Old Testament? He would come and give you strength for some, do something, and then he would go. He would come and help you do something, and then he may go. But not this one. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and rest upon him. Stay with him. And by the way, that just makes John's kind of being full of the Spirit from his mother's womb even that more significant. But anyways, that's a side issue. And so... This, this uh, Isaiah 11 tells us that whoever the Spirit rests upon and is, stays upon is the Messiah. 61 verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me. This is actually this, uh, the Messianic servant, the suffering servant, and he's speaking of himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. I've preached this before, I think. Well, I know I have. <laughs> but this is where, this verse, if you remember, was read by Jesus when he shows up at the synagogue of Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, which we'll see in Luke chapter 4. And then Luke 4 verse 18, Jesus is going to, after he reads it, he'll close the book, he'll say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, period. And like, oh, wow, 
the Spirit of God, this, he's, saying he's the Messiah. That's why they, they wanted to stone him and kill him afterwards. Because he was blaspheming as far as they, could, they were concerned. But so the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus is then a confirmation, at least according to Isaiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the, he's the branch of Jesse. He is the suffering servant. He's the one that's being equipped to do a good work. He's given wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord, all that he needs so that he might be able to bring good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty captives, and set the prisoners free. That's, Jesus is getting ready. And the Spirit, he needs the Spirit for this work. He would, the Spirit would enable him, empower him to fulfill his ministry. In fact, when we see the very beginning, the first verse of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Luke records this. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So Jesus' ministry begins in the power of the Spirit, and it begins right here in the baptism when the Holy Spirit descends upon him from heaven upon his baptism. Now, I want to answer a question that I know some of us have been answering. That is the question of, why a dove? Why a dove? Why does the Holy Spirit descend as dove? Is, is that just like the Holy Spirit's, you know, creature in a form, you know? Is it like how Jesus, his form is man, but Spirit's form is dove, you know? Well, no. Okay, that's not it. It says you've watched too many uh, cartoon hero things. But... Here's, here's, there are two, scholars are just, are just have, do not agree on this, but there are two answers I think are very feasible, very feasible, biblically allowable. So it's one or the other, you can take your pick. Uh, and the first one is this, that it, it is picturing something about the Holy Spirit. And that is, that the Holy Spirit, uh, in Matthew 10, 16, Jesus tells us to be, uh, to be gentle as, uh, to be innocent as doves, innocent as doves. And so, um, and as well as wise as serpents, but the so a dove in that society in those days represented innocence, gentleness, meekness, and that would have described the spirit of God. And when and the spirit of God as well, not only describes spirit, but that, of course that would have, and when the spirit came upon Jesus, he, Jesus would be also was would be characterized by gentleness, innocence, uh, meekness as well. And certainly that's true of Jesus. Jesus was the most humble man. He was very he had all sorts of power, but it was always under control. It was a it was a meekness that the scriptures describe, a gentleness, an innocence completely. Um, and that's one way to see this. That somehow it's just a description of of the spirit of God and what he's like, and as well as Jesus, whom he uh, uh, stays upon. But the other answer, which I prefer. And it's based upon basically the most significant passage, uh, at least to me it's the most significant passage, that involves a dove in the Old Testament. If you think about doves in the Old Testament, you're probably going to think of only two particular kind of cases. The first one you may think of is basically all the sacrificial system, Leviticus. You know, oh, if you, you this sacrifice, you need two turtle doves, or you, you know, or a lamb, or or if you can't afford it, you use the doves. Uh, but there was doves were all part of the sacrifice system, and and they would that the appearance of a dove would appear in many different places in Leviticus. But that's not, I don't believe that's the the other passage you would think about is what Genesis, right? Genesis. Actually, if you ever you know don't know where something's found in the Bible the first time, it's probably in Genesis. Okay, Genesis chapter eight. Genesis chapter 8, verse 8 to 12. And this is really cool because this is part of the flood again. Again, it's the flood and the, the waters of the, uh, that had been covered the whole earth. And the waters at this point, by Genesis chapter 8, is starting to recede. 
And what Noah does is he, uh, one day he just kind of opens up the window in the, in the ark, the, and he lets out a dove. And the dove basically, uh, because the ark has basically had stopped, it landed on the, one, the mountain of Ararat. And it, the dove flies around and comes back to him because it doesn't find any land. So Noah waits one week, and then he sends out the dove again. The dove again flies around, and this time comes back to the ark, and, but this time with a, a, bre- a leaf, an olive, uh, an olive leaf, I believe, uh, in its mouth, a, a fresh one, as the, the scriptures describe. And so one week goes on, and then Noah lets out the dove one more time, and, but this time the dove doesn't return, and it flies off. And so uh, since that imagery of the, the dove and, and, the, and the being flown out and then always returning to the ark where, at least for those first two weeks, for safety because that was the only safe place for any living creatures to dwell. Well, here we see a picture of a dove coming or dwelling upon the one person who, in, a sense, in essence, is the source of safety from judgment, right? And the, 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 the dove, of course, even in, by our days, is a symbol of peace. Another way to say peace, describe peace, is deliverance from judgment. The dove basically becomes a symbol of deliverance from judgment, a symbol of, of the presence of peace as we think of today. And that's what I believe is described when the Holy Spirit comes as a dove to uh, Jesus. And you don't have to take that view. You don't have to stone me for it, by the way. But uh, that's just the view I, I'm leaning towards because it just makes, uh, fits this, uh, the, uh, the, um, the Noah's Ark thing. Um, okay, so... So the Holy Spirit's descent upon Jesus was a symbol that Jesus would bring deliverance from judgment, and he would bring peace with God. Now, uh, we talked about Jesus, the Father, the Spirit's descent. Now, similar to other applications, if Jesus was full of the Spirit for his ministry, then how much more should we, you and I be filled with our, the Holy Spirit, right? We need the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we're, I know we're not a charismatic church. And you know what happens when we're not charismatic churches? We tend to de-emphasize the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's our, that's our problem. That's our bad, okay? We got to remember the Holy Spirit's not just up there, okay? Or not just oh, in there somewhere. Where's the Holy Spirit? Right here, indwelling each one of us. That's, that's, that's the same Holy Spirit that dwells within Jesus, right? When he came on Jesus. That's, that's the spiritual power. And we, you just read Acts, you see the power of manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we are, we are cessationists, so we don't believe in some of those things. But there is the power of the Holy Spirit. To empower you and me for the work that we call to do. He gives courage. He gives us grace. He gives us wisdom. He gives us knowledge. Just as you might just see in the scripture and think about for Jesus. All that he needed, the Holy Spirit gave him. Empowered him. Equipped him. Enabled him to do. And we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we depend upon the Holy Spirit? How do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? I believe that comes through prayer and the word. Uh, Prayer through by being richly filled with the word of Christ. Dependent prayerfully. And dependent upon God and asking the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we would then do what we do, what God's called us to do on this earth for his glory. All right. So in response to Jesus' prayer, the heavens are opened and the Spirit descends upon him. Now the third and last event, our third final point is, of course, the Father, the Father's voice. The Father himself gets involved here. He, he is, makes a, manifests himself in the baptism of Jesus or in the prayer that Jesus, in response to the, the prayer of Jesus after his baptism. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. The voice isn't mentioned as far as who, or isn't identified as who it is. It's, but it, just from what it says, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. 
This could only be made by the Father. And the fact that it's coming from heaven, uh, it can only be Father. It's, it's not one of the angels that are saying it. The voice is directed toward Jesus, by the way. You are my beloved son. Um, and it's debated whether what God says is actually heard by everybody else. Uh, but I believe it is. Matthew's account seems to imply that. That uh, he, when he says, he kind of translates a little bit differently. Uh, but uh, for the sake of time, we'll mention the details. But I believe that it was something audible. Because it had to be audible, or it had to be at least understood by Jesus. For sure it was understood by Jesus, but I believe it was also understood at least by John the Baptist. And, and most likely others, because somewhere along the way, this tradition had to be passed down, right? It wasn't just supernaturally revealed to Luke. It, it could have been, but he was recording everything. He was researching. So he would have had to find this, this story, this record, from somebody and he was, someone told him that what God says is, you are my beloved son. And so someone heard it. In you I am well pleased. The Father's voice then basically serves as an affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, we see the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Now we see the affirmation of the Father. He affirms Jesus. He says some of the most, at least even like, Humanly speaking, these are some of the most affirming words that a father could say to his son. God essentially says three things to his son. He says this, you are my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. That's what he says, right? You are my son, my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. You know, Jesus is a human and I can tell you, just like any of you here, if you heard your father say that to you, <laughs> you'd be like a mess like me. <laughs> it's not something you normally hear, especially if someone that kind of grows up in society where your dads don't tell you they love you. They say, well, you know I love you. I put food on your table. Or I'm proud of you. And yeah, I didn't hear that until I was an adult. You know, of course, these are, these are things that God says of Jesus. But I think there's a... There's a just a, if you will, uh, an application to parenting a little bit. Just that fathers, you know, we, you know, just, I hope that you can say these things to, you, to your children. Or, you know, mothers too, but I always think mothers always say these kind of things, you know. But fathers, we're kind of a little more distant. We're a little more frugal with our words. You go say, go find your son or your daughter. Just say, you're my son, you're my daughter. I love you and I'm proud of you. And you just, uh, you know, watch them grow. I, just, I think you, you, at least, I believe you'll see that. And I don't know the temptation because I got young ones. And I'm pretty sure they think I, I don't, I'm not proud of them. Because I keep telling them, no, no, don't do that. No, no. Uh, oh, you know. I'm, but I, hold me accountable, brothers and sisters. Make sure I, I say that to my kids too. Along, all the time. But anyways. This, goes, this passage is just not really about teaching us parenting, okay? But I just want to say that because this is just that devotional truth that just that stands out. But what, is, what these words are more than just an illustration for parenting. They are actually, what God says here, are actually a fulfillment of Scripture. Because in, in what God says, there are actually two uh, prophecy or two Scriptures that are quoted or alluded to here in the Father's statement. The first one is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. 
You are my son. Psalm 2, 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. We've preached it before or studied before. It recognizes basically, the, the psalmist recognizes that the enthroned Davidic king is God's, or as God's son. Remember the Davidic covenant? God promised to David that one day, one of his descendants, one of his sons, who would come from him, God would set upon the throne of David, not just for a lifetime, but forever. And that son of David would be a son to God. That then became, eventually became a symbol, the son of God would become a messianic title. It would be used, and uh, we, we see it in the prophecy of Isaiah, a son shall be given to us. The son is seen as a messianic uh, a title. And so when God says of Jesus, you are my son, he's referring here to Psalm 2, verse 7, and he's saying basically of Jesus, revealing about Jesus, that he is the messianic king. He is the son that is seen in all the, many of the other prophecies of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, even, about who who's, who's, uh, would have a, his, he would, his kingdom would never come to an end. It would be a kingdom of peace. And he would be God's son. The next verse that's referred to usually by uh, the father's statement is Isaiah 42, verse 1. The statement of, in you I am well pleased is found here. Behold my servant whom I hold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And this is one of the, the first of the four messian- messianic suffering servant songs, right? Uh, we looked at this when we went through Isaiah. And but what stands out here is that God, when he calls this servant, he says, this, my servant is one in whom my soul delights or is pleased with. Someone I'm, I'm pleased with. Or, and, and why is he pleased with him? Because he brings forth justice. Uh, furthermore, in the Greek translation of this, that phrase, my chosen one in Isaiah 42, is actually translated as my beloved, my loved, beloved. So that's why we get the beloved here in, uh, in Luke. Saying, you are my beloved son, in whom, in you, I am well pleased. See, God is pleased with his son. Even though he's, just, he's at the beginning of his ministry, God is pleased with him because of already what he's done. He's already emptied himself and taken on the form of a man. He's humbled himself, and he's going to humble himself even to the point of death. But to tell you the truth, to be humbled as a man is already far greater, far greater humility than to be humbled to the point of death. His, it's a far, to the, diff, the, gap, the gap between God, the deity, and humanity is so great. But for humans to die, that happens all the time. But Jesus nevertheless came to take on the form of man and to die, to eventually to die for the sins of mankind. And in that, God's justice will be fulfilled. You know, every time there's a believer in the world who comes to faith in Christ, it is really a a manifestation of God's justice. We think of God's mercy and God's grace, and certainly that is towards us. But every time that we, one of us, one, any person who is a sinner who comes to God's grace and is forgiven and has, receives eternal life and receives the Holy, the Holy Spirit, that is a, a constant reminder of God's judgment. Because you've received something by grace and mercy because the judgment that you deserve has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. And 
his, each and every time because of that, for those of us who believe in him, there is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's a future emphasis here. Isaiah 42.1, it really is ultimately going to fulfill when Jesus returns. And justice will reign over the whole land. There's a lot of, just, uh, my first service I just went off on, the, the corruption of our governments. And there's just always a lot of that. This is because we're, there's corruption everywhere. There's, there's corruption even in churches as well. Because Why? Because there's sinners in those places. Wherever you find sinners, you're going to find corruption. It's, if you guys have been following news, even some very Bible-believing Bible churches, denominations have been affected by, well, by sin. So don't put your hope in governments, brothers and sisters. I know some of you love politics, love governments, love the gospel nation, but don't put your hope in those things. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Okay? Put your hope in Christ. He alone is our Messiah. All right, let's move on. Well, God's verbal affirmation of Jesus, I'm going to summarize, uh, of Jesus as Messiah serves to inform the reader then, basically, of that, Luke, that Jesus is no ordinary religious leader. He's not just an example to follow and not a philosophy to, to kind of live your life by. He's not just a prophet who has some words from God that are helpful to us. He's more than all those things. The baptism of Jesus shows us that Jesus is no less than the divine Son of God, who is the Messianic King and the Savior of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And by God's own admission, you are my son, my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. We come, we come to understand that no one can come to the Father but through him, but through the Son. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must follow him. And this should be our message. When we go out in the world, you come across someone who follows a different faith, you, you know, well, don't insult them, please. But as you talk with them, share with them, the truth of Jesus Christ. Don't say, oh, good, you're, you're just another, another way to get to heaven. Don't shortchange people like that. That's, that's, how much would you hate someone to tell them that? Right? If you believe the truth about the gospel, don't tell them that. There's not just one many ways to heaven. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. Well, let me just conclude uh, with a summary statement. And it's in, in Jesus' baptism, we see the identification of the Son with John's ministry and message. We see the confirmation of the spirit of who Jesus is, the Messiah, and the affirmation of the Father as to who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. And then all these point to the very fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And I hope that that will encourage you, that will equip you for whenever you go out in the world and you come across someone and say, Jesus was, oh, Jesus was just a good you know, philosopher, religious man. Well, you can point to many different places but if you just come to this passage and say, well, do you know what God the Father said about Jesus? He said, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. And leave it there. And uh, may God use us to bring the light of Christ into our world. Let's pray. Father, and thank you for this word. Thank you for this uh, delving into this uh, this passage of describing the baptism of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that it's, it's more than just a historical fact, but it's, it is for us a revelation of who Jesus is. It's, in fact, your word of who Jesus is. And we thank you, God, for making yourself known, manifesting yourself on that day. Thank you, Lord, that it's been recorded for us. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to, uh, uh, to understand this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah by all accounts. 
that there will be no question in our hearts that, you, that those of us here that may be wrestling even with the truth, that might be doubting, wondering if there's some other way, that, Lord, that you would use this passage and the many other passages that are going to come in after to confirm for them the truth of that which they've been taught all along about Jesus. Oh, God, may you glorify yourself in this church. Cause us to be prayerful people, spirit-filled people who go into our world and make a difference to love you, to love the world, to love others, our neighbors as ourselves, and to declare to them the message that you brought, the message of the gospel, the message of repent and believe upon you, upon your son, for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, God, that you are a just God. And Lord, we thank you that because Christ has paid the penalty of our sins, whoever believes upon him can have not only forgiveness of sins, but can have peace with you, can be delivered from judgment, can know the kind of life that you want us to live, to know our purpose, just as Jesus knew his purpose clearly. Father, may we follow in his footsteps. May you make this church your light in this corner of San Francisco in the Bay Area. May the name of Jesus Christ be magnified and glorified. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.